was Ian's idea to form a, a scar band. He convinced me to, to go along. We didn't have any anybody else, which is my brother and I. And then we put a little ad in Duke Music magazine saying, you know, um, here we are. <laughs> We're putting together a scar band. Wow, you know, scar band in Australia. I didn't expect to hear scar here, you know, because anything I knew about Australia growing up was based on the white Australia policy. So none of it was positive. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 224. Currently underway is the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, the nation's premier documentary film festival that showcases a thought-provoking, passionate and diverse range of films that will cater to everyone's tastes. Running from the 19th to the 30th of July, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival especially features a number of Australian films, two of which I will talk about on today's podcast. The first film is Strange Tenants Scarred for Life, an exploration into the history and influence of the godfathers of Australian scar Strange Tenants, who emerged in 1980s Melbourne with an energetic live act filled with original political songs, unlike most other Australian scar bands. I'm happy to say joining me on the podcast today is Strange Tenants Scarred for Life director Fiona Cotrain. Fiona, I thank you very much for joining me today. I just want to talk about your career first as a filmmaker. Interestingly, you graduated from medical school, so this was not an initial career option for you. How did you transition from medical school to go to into filmmaking? Um, well, I actually haven't totally transitioned because I still support myself as a GP. I work part-time as a general practitioner. Okay. Um, so it hasn't been a transition. They've gone along as parallel lines, but at the time when I left school... I didn't really know what the options were in terms of following film, so I went down a more academic, straight academic pathway, and uh, then became involved with a variety of people who were making films, etc. So started doing that on the side, um, and have sort of continued the two on, which is very helpful because you don't make much money making films, so I can help support myself and support my filmmaking via doing medicine. Trust me, film criticism is the same. I'm working at two jobs as well, so I'm right there with you. Um, interesting. People in the arts of all different descriptions. Exactly right. Um, interestingly, you previously have done a lot of work with music-related um, subjects. You've done a few documentaries. One of them, a uh, documentary on Joe Camilleri, who's, of course, from the Black Sorrows. you even done music videos for the Black Sorrows. Is that right? Yeah, I've done at least a dozen, more than a dozen um, for them. But And I started off back in the 80s doing music videos for Dynamic Hypnotics and people like that, yeah. And was it around this time that you got turned on to Strange Tenants? Yeah, it was around that time that I was actually going and seeing bands like Strange Tenants and also Jojo Zepp and the Falcons and Dynamic Hypnotics and all those sort of fabulous bands that were around in the mid-80s. So I wanted to just paint a picture of what the Australian music scene was like at that time. So I was looking up some chart details for 1981, which is when Strange Tenants first got together. And and the five best-selling artists, Australian artists at that time, was Australian Crawl, ACDC, Billy Field, Icehouse and Cold Chisel. So we're looking at very much rock artists 
um, uh, you know, stuff you might hear now on classic FM, Triple M, etc. Um, Strange Tenants is a totally different monster altogether. Number one, it's a multiracial band. And number two, it's a left-leaning political band as well. Does that combination, that kind of difference to the norm at that time, was that something that really appealed to you as a, as a fan of music, especially in the Melbourne scene? Yeah, it did, absolutely. But they're also, I mean, they had a huge appeal just because it's very um, enjoyable, danceable um, music as well. So it had sort of both sides going for it. Scar in Australia, um, predominantly, I think a lot of people at, at that time were used to more the UK kind of exports, Madness, for example. Um, for a Scar Australian band, Strange Stands were very much kind of the first people to kind of put down that label in Australia, is that correct? Um, the, the Strange Tenets were the first? Yes. Look, there were some, I think they were certainly the first big bigger ones in Melbourne. I think there might have been a Sydney, I'm not sure if exactly what the history is in Sydney, um, but they were certainly in the early group of them, but the majority of the early ska bands in Australia played the older classic ska hits, whereas the tenants uh, wrote their own music. So while they did a few, they did some of the old sort of blue beat classic ones, they predominantly wrote their own and predominantly wrote more political ones. They were also what I think a lot of people would call road dogs. I mean, they set themselves up with a career on the road. I think what one of the brothers um, from Strange Tenet said was they did 1,200 dates over five years. Is that is that correct? Yep. Yeah. And um, they really kind of established themselves that way. And the live music scene in the 80s, especially in Melbourne, was really world-renowned at that time. Um, of course, a lot of that changed in the 90s with the introdu introduction of poker machines, etc. Um, a lot of um, owners of pubs and clubs are rather getting revenue from that than having live music. Um, you were out there in the 80s going to the live music venues. What was it like at that time? Was it, was it kind of like a thing where you can watch a great act from a stone throw away from wherever you were that night? Yeah, it was. You know, there, there were great um, music shows on it most of the pubs around town or many of the pubs there were at least a dozen in a city and then there were some of the older the, the outer big beer barns and things that had um the bigger shows and things on the weekend and stuff but there was always um good pub music um here of a variety i mean disco was the other thing that actually also killed some of the pub scene too that came in in the 80s you know, where people would prefer to just put on disco music rather than actually pay a band to play. So just like uh, jukebox hits, DJs, etc.? Yeah. yeah. And, and does the... I think you mentioned before in regards to the appeal of Sky, and that's for people to go out and dance. Um, you mentioned discos before, that's of course very much a dance culture as well. Does that appeal for people to go out and actually move their bodies and do stuff like that? Was that a real appeal for Sky music at the time, especially considering some of the other artists I mentioned before? Oh, look, I think it was. I mean, look, I think people da always go out and dance and things, but Scar is very, a bit more danceable than many um, types of music. And Mick Thomas actually comments in the documentary that, you know, men got up and danced all the time. So it was a little bit more like a sort of something they might be doing at football training <laughs> in their dance style, but they were still up there dancing. So, so um, yeah, and there was a lot of that which... For, you know, particularly a lot of, because the, the Strange Tenants from 
being given the basis of um, SCAR, there were a lot of working class in particular, men that are around who probably wouldn't have gone and danced to other music, who were happy to get out um, on the dance floor with a SCAR band. So for everyone out there who hasn't seen visuals from this, pretty much a dance is hands are low, almost like jogging in one spot, but to the rhythm of the ska music, pretty much. <laughs> a bit like that. Um, how did you come about to want to make a documentary about Strange Tenets? Did the reunion, was the reunion something that really kind of uh, rekindled some memory for you about how prominent they were at that time? Is that where the kind of process began? Oh, look, I, I know Bruce Hearn. So I had known Bruce over the years, and really the the impetus was that there was, he told me that there was a book being written um, about the Strange Tenants, which was um, completed last year by Lorraine Downer, and uh, so I thought, oh well, there's a book, and, and we joked really initially about, oh, why don't we do a documentary, and then I sort of went and had to think about it and thought, yeah, well, why don't? We do a documentary, so we did. Just started off doing it, and they also had a new album out last year, mm-hmm. which had a bit of a mini tour around Australia. So we were able to sort of film a little bit of them doing some of that as well, and it sort of coincided with both the book and their new CD. So it seemed like a good time to do it. When it comes to a band like Strange Tenants, are very politically active. What drives them more, do you think? Is it the music, the creation of music between them all, or wanting to get their message out about um, whatever political stance um, they have at that time? Look, it's both. For the, for the Hearn brothers, it's both. They have a very strong musical background and musical interest, and when Bruce is not in Strange Tenants, he is doing blues and other sorts of music, or at the moment he's doing a Woody Guthrie um, show and going back to sort of his folk music roots. So the music interest in a variety of um, musical styles is is there for the Hearn Brothers. Um, Plus the politics is, you know, part of their, very much part of their background as the documentary tries to show. Um, The really interesting thing that I came came across with, and a lot of this kind of stuff's new for me because Scar was never really uh, my scene. I was more kind of a rock guy and metal guy, but there's some kind of parallels in there. Um, especially when it came to just traditional punk music and skinhead culture, um, when that kind of is involved in it as well. Um, and what's really interesting about your documentary is that it kind of shows the evolution of skinhead culture. A lot of people from the outside looking in equate skinhead culture with um, pro, pro, uh, far-right movements, racism, etc. Um, but, but the beginnings of it was very much a pro-working-class movement, and it was rather apolitical, wasn't it? It was. If, if anything, it was... Um it was more anti-racist than anything else when it started. And we have Pat Powell, who's a Jamaican um, who grew up in the UK, talking in there and saying that he was a skinhead. Um, as a black man, he was a skinhead and it was an anti-racist thing. But it then got hijacked, really, by the National Front and the UK right um, to break off into the neo-Nazi element of skinheads. But, you know, for Scar, it was about the rude boys. It was about working class um, uh, boys and girls, rude boys and rude girls, who would dress up at a particular style of dress and love going out dancing. The particular style was very much representative of the working class back then. You had kind of like yep. your uh, Doc Martin suspenders, uh, kind of denim jean kind of look like that. Yep. Um, All of that. Or, yep. 
And what's really interesting... And they weren't they weren't violent and they weren't anti-racist. They were anything um, but. And the early two-tone scar was specifically an anti-racist movement and, and blacks and whites playing together. Yeah, interestingly, even at some of their shows, there was sometimes the element of that far-right kind of representation of... Uh, the skinhead culture as well. I know it's a really kind of um, uh, crazy story that was shared about at one show where um, someone just pretty much said, look, they're about to go off out there because it was Hitler's birthday. And I can imagine the, the reaction that the strange sense would have had on that who were very much anti against all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah, no, they, that was true. And they talk about that there was an element in there of the, the um, Nazi skinhead that they had to try and... Um, uh, get rid of as much as they could or certainly not give any air to. Was there also a thing where they kind of felt in a sort of sense of responsibility to maybe convert these guys back from where the star cold that they came well, from? Look, I think they always talked about that and the music talked about that and actually they, they do talk about a number of people you know, coming up to them at different times and talking about how their music and their lyrics and their politics had changed them. So I think that that happened. I mean, how widely that is, who knows? But certainly there were anecdotal sort of stories that the Hearn brothers were told about that. Um, the band were separated for quite a long time. And it's a normal thing, I think, when people get older, priorities change. Um, guys want to have families and do different things. Then you have the reunion. Um, and a lot of the original members, or original as in the first guys who made their first record together, um, were, came back together, they got a little older, but the fire is still there, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, and they all are really very close. Um, as they say, you know, bands either, you know, hate each other or stay together as a family, and they were actually really all very close and have remained so, and really love coming back and playing whenever they can. Well, um, so they've continued to do that for 36 years, really. Well, not free, they're not playing very frequently these days, but they continue to come back and play at different times. Do you think the the thing of not them not playing very frequently it comes down to maybe not as many venues as they used to be in in their time? I think it's I think it's a mixture of all sorts of things. It's about that they all have other jobs and things now too, um, and. Um, you know, so they've moved on in, in other different ways, they're doing different things, but they still love coming together periodically to play Strange Tenants music. Well, look, I really, Fiona, I really love this movie. I like being introduced to kind of like acts, um, uh, music acts that people, that kind of fell on the wayside from one reason or another. And I think it's really cool that you made this documentary, kind of remind people that there was this band and they're very important to their kind of like evolution of Australian music. And for anyone out there, if you want to check out a Strange Tenants Guard for Life, currently playing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, Cinema Nova have a session July 24, 2019 at 6.15pm and you can go to mdff.org.au to get tickets for that. Um, Fiona Cotrain, I thank you very much for joining me today to talk about Strange Tenants uh, Scout for Life and hopefully we can talk in the future about other projects you have going on as well. Absolutely, yep. Excellent. Thank you very much, Matt. The second film that I'll feature on this podcast that's playing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is The Candidate, a feature-length observational documentary that follows Green's candidate Alex Patel as she attempts for the sixth time to win the inner-city Melbourne seat of Batman. With a 1% margin between her and a seat in the Australian Federal Parliament, Alex Patel finally seems poised to win. Yet politics has never been easy or clean, and in this campaign, Alex will be played by a political scandal that made national headlines. 
joining me now to talk about the candidate is Director Helen Gaynor. Helen, I thank you very much for joining me today. So it's really interesting, um, this whole kind of process. I remember seeing this play out in the national news in the last election as well. So it's, it's so fascinating to go behind the scenes and see what was happening on the ground. Um, and it's, it, the, the story itself was interesting to begin with. You have a candidate with a, her sixth attempt to try to get this seat. You have a Labour, um, uh, you have a seat of Batman that's been held by Labour for over 80 years. This was her chance to finally win the seat for the Greens. Was, was that the initial kind of purpose you had to kind of follow this campaign of, amongst all the many others during this election campaign? Yes, because I wanted to follow someone who's standing as a candidate for the federal electoral process for many years because it interests me as to what happens to someone who's not a politician uh, during a campaign. Uh, and so the opportunity came up uh, with Alex because I live in the electorate and I've known her for some time and we've talked about it in the past and this election, the one last year, looked like uh, there was a possibility of actually following her up to Canberra because that was the other thing I was interested in is to see what it's like for someone who's never been a professional politician to join the federal parliament and I was hoping to follow her right up to, the, to and including her maiden speech. So that was the original idea. So the perfect world was... Alex wins the seat. She had that 1% margin. It was it was very close to happening. You follow her to Canberra and film right there. That's, that was the idea. And, of course, life being stranger to fiction, especially in politics, it didn't end up that way. And it's because of this scandal that plagued Alex throughout the campaign. So you had leaking to the Australian and the ABC from inside the Greens Party, uh, bullying and branch stacking claims. So when all this is happening and all this news is coming out, What's the reaction from you as a, not only a filmmaker but someone who knew Alex and knew that this could very much derail her campaign? Well, it's interesting because there were three levels I was working on. So as a filmmaker, I've done this sort of filmmaking before. It's actually my preferred style of documentary where I'm following a process I have no control over. So from that perspective, I, I knew, look, I just had to keep filming and then we would figure out in the edit... Uh, whether there was actually a story there or not and what the story was going to be. So that's the normal process. But then as a, as a, as a member of the electorate, I was um, really shocked because I hadn't realised how dirty politics could get, particularly when I saw the big bully stickers up all over her, her um, placards. Uh, and I was a bit shocked that um, people within their own party would derail such an incredibly incredible opportunity. Uh, and then, of course, someone who knows Alex, seeing the impact on it was uh, was uh, difficult. You know, I, I had a lot of um, empathy for her because it was uh, you know a very stressful situation for her and the whole team that was around her because there were a lot of very good-hearted people volunteering a mountain of time and energy to get the campaign up and running and to get her over the line and of course it affected everybody not just Alex. Was there any pushback from Alex or any of her team to not film uh, after that news break? No, look the, the Greens organisation were, in, were incredibly helpful so I, had to, I went to Alex and the Greens initially with the proposition and they both came on board they were circumspect about what sort of things they'd let me have access to so I didn't get access as you can see from the documentary, to any of the, the backroom kind of discussions about what was going on and how to deal with it. But uh, there was never really any pushback to say, no, you have to stop filming now. Um, uh, this, it's all finished, you know, all, all bets are off. So I still received support from them because I think nobody knew how it would actually play out. 
So, you know, they still supported the documentary, which I thought was actually terrific on their behalf. Um, prior to what happened with Alex, the Greens already had scandal already the year before. Um, in 2018, there were a number of allegations regarding sexual misconduct and cover-up. In the film, Alex spoke very proudly about her association with the Greens. She spoke about how they really talked to her, Bob Brown in particular, um, when it came to the Tampa crisis and everything happened then. Considering all the things that was going on um, from a distance from her and then to happen to her personally, how do you think that really tested her loyalty to the party during this very kind of stressful and high stakes um, campaign? Well, I think, and we talked about this, there's two different loyalties to the party. She's still, you know, despite the fact she's not a member anymore, she's still very loyal to the, the four pillars of the Greens. That's the philosophy that guides their politics. And she believes in that, uh, as far as I understand. Um, but it was the, the politics within the organisation. It did, did, um, did rock her um, belief in the organisation, as it would with anyone working within a political organisation where that sort of thing happens to you. So um, it, it's, it's a very tricky uh, situation for anyone to be in in any political party, I think, when you're being attacked by members of your own team. Uh, you know, then what does the administration do with that? So, yeah, it was a testing time. But I, I did see support from the Greens organisation for Alex and her campaign. They certainly didn't abandon her. And as the documentary points out, the, the complainants did lodge their complaints with the Greens process, and it was processed by the Victorian uh, the Greens and, and found that there wasn't... Alex didn't have a case to answer. So, you know, they did give it due process, as far as I could tell, um, and uh, found that there was no, no case to answer on the part of Alex and they re-endorsed her as a candidate and supported her campaign. Uh, but clearly some of the con constituency didn't really uh, buy that. Um, there was scenes within the film and I think what's really important about this film, it really shows, especially when it comes to independent candidates or candidates for like a, a minor party like the Greens, just how lonely it can be when you put yourself out there like Alex has had, had done so for so long. And there are scenes when she's out there, she's handing out the pamphlets, she's talking to people in shopping malls. And the reaction pre and post the that that scandal, that news breaking, was really was night and day. There were some people that were kind of really hard to her. Um, you mentioned the bully uh, labels. Um, there was some people who uh, went right up to her face and said things to her while she was trying to hand out pamphlets at voting booths. I mean, it, it must have been incredibly hard to watch her go through that. Well, it was, and it was part of the reason to make the documentary because anyone who stands as a candidate, uh, you know, puts themselves in a position where this might happen to them. And um, there are discussions in the in the documentary about, well, you know, if you're going to put your hand up, you've got to be expected, you've got to expect, you know, the, the tough blows. But the discussion in the documentary really is about, well, but should you should should your opponents, whether they're from within the party or outside the party, play? the ball or not the player mm. and um, they were playing the player in, in this time so yeah it was, it was tough it made me, it, so that was part of the point of making the documentary because the questions raised well what sort of a person do you have to be to endure that kind of scrutiny and that kind of uh, public uh, process where you're kind of fair game for anyone who wants to come up and, and um, have a go at you 
Um, Richard Di Natale, the leader of the Greens, he features in the documentaries. A few times he's there to support Alex, and with good reason. I mean, 1% margin chance to get a, another seat in the Australian Federal Parliament. There's all the reason in the world why he should be there. Um, when it came to that scandal, though, when it breaks, what do you think his attitude was towards the whole thing? Um, was it uh, more about saving face for the Greens or there to, to help Alex, a little bit of both, or was there something else going on there? Look, I could only see pretty much what the audience sees in, in the documentary. So, uh, as I said, even when the scandal broke out, the Greens and organisation still supported me as a filmmaker, and all I could see was support for Alex. Richard Di Natale was very supportive of Alex. He stood by her the whole way through. Um, so I didn't see nothing that I saw, and I wasn't doing an investigative piece. I was doing an observational piece. Yes. I, 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 it, nothing seemed to change, um, except that, of course, uh, the Greens and their machine had to spend a lot of time dealing with the complaints instead of running the campaign that they wanted to run. So it was very stressful for everyone, I think. This past election um, uh, was, I think, incredibly intense, more than any other I can think of in recent memory. There's actually an interesting scene where, um, in, your doctory, uh, in your documentary, a Greens volunteer was talking about how this year it just everything felt just so much more uh, emotional. It's just uh, there was just something in the air that was just really kind of tense and such. And outside of what was happening in Batman, like here um, up here in Sydney in Tony Abbott's seat, uh, like a Tony Abbott supporter was attacked with a screwdriver. I mean, things like this don't usually happen. It was just such an emotional election. Why do you think it, that this election, more than any other, just had that type of emotion behind it where people were going, whether within the party or outside the party or supporters of certain parties, were just so kind of, um, just so intense and just were just going to extreme measures to, to and, and doing things that usually they wouldn't wouldn't do? follows a by-election that happened last year as opposed to the federal election that happened this year. However, it did happen on the weekend. It was called the Super Saturday, I think, when there were a whole raft of by-elections. And I think it was a precursor to exactly what you're talking about, the very heightened tensions that existed in the election this year. It may be because, uh, look, in the Batman by-election, I think why it got so nasty there was because the stakes were very high. The Greens for the first time in the seat's history, looked like they could take it away from the Labor Party. And of course, you know, for 80 years, it's been an absolutely safe Labor seat. And that, uh, over the, the years that Alex has run, since 2001, that incredible majority has been slowly chipped away um, to the point where it was one of the most marginal seats in the country. So I think, I think Batman had its own very special atmosphere uh, because the stakes were so high. Labor might lose one of the safest seats that they've ever had. And of course, when the stakes are that high, then the knives come out. So I think that was part of the part, part of what was happening there. In terms of the, the bigger political scenario, I guess, look, I, I've read a lot about what's going on. People do seem to be hunkering down into their own camps. And possibly what happened in Tony Abbott's seat was similar to what happened in Batman in that it was very high stakes. It had been a safe liberal seat forever and um, it, suddenly it was on the line. So I think when, in, in a seat-by-seat seat analysis, when seats are on the line like that, then of course every, every, everything and everyone is fair game. So I think that's what was going on in those two particular uh, seats. Alex, um, 
announced in February 2019 that not only would she not run again, but she actually quit the Greens Party and she she said it was because of relentless organisational bullying. Um, And look, the Greens Party, how do you think, like, just looking at this documentary and observing it all, this was theirs to win and just to watch it implode like that, does that speak more about just the, the stakes on hand because of what was happening or just as a Greens Party as a whole and do you think they can bounce back from, from something like this? Look, I, this is not an investigative documentary and a few people will be disappointed because they want to know where the skeletons are buried and that sort of stuff, but that's really more of a four-corners piece. So look, I can't actually give that analysis uh, because it's not an analytical piece. It really was always intended as an observational piece to reveal the real lived experience of running for federal parliament as, as a non-politician. So I don't know. It was a very particular situation. Um, possibly the way it was dealt with is some reflection on the Greens as a whole, and I've heard some discussions going on about the fact that the Greens are at a very interesting stage as a political party where they're influential, they look like they're here to stay, so the stakes do get getting higher for them, so then they attract more sort of politically motivated people, and their processes, this is one of the discussions, was that their processes came from a kind of an environmental activist background and possibly they have to renew them, now that they really are a a political force. And that's a discussion that I know is happening in the Greens, it's probably happening constantly in the Greens because of their evolution. So that, that is one discussion that I've heard going around the piece. And, and uh, you know, it's an interesting proposition. How do you move yourself as a political party from an environmental activist background into, you know, a player in the federal scene? What does a party need to do about its organisational processes to ensure that that's successful? And I think that's where the Greens are at the moment. That's just my analysis as someone who's interested in politics and who's also a, 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 you know, a constituent in the um, Batman now Cooper um, electorate. That's right. It was changed to Cooper in March of this year, is that correct? That's right, because, um, of course, uh, Batman, uh, big John Batman, uh, doesn't have a fantastic reputation. People <laughs> sort of saying, why are we naming the seat after somebody who was associated with the... Um, uh, with, with the genocide of, uh, the, of the Aboriginal population in Tasmania and Cooper, you know, is a much more uh, appropriate name because uh, he was an Aboriginal member of the First Nations in the area and was an incredible activist. So we're, I think most people are happy about the name change. So for everyone listening out there, The Candidate is having its premiere at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You can see it at Cinema Nova, July 28, 2019 at 11am. Um, you can go to mdff.org.au uh, for more information in regards to ticketing. And Helen Gaynor, I thank you very much for talking to me today. It's a fascinating documentary. Uh, and just really just went on the ground, boots on the ground look at uh, a campaign and a really interesting campaign of that so congratulations to you on the film and, and hopefully we get to talk again in the future in regards to any other projects you have in the pipeline. Thank you very much can I just mention that the session on the 28th of July has been sold out but there's another session on the 31st of July at 845 at Cinema Nova you can still get tickets for that but thank you so much for having me on the show and uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed the documentary